so it's it's not an official OBU day, but it's sort of OBU day because uh, I'm I'm preaching and Justin has led us in uh, the singing today, worship, and Justin is a are you a junior? He's a junior, an accounting major, and uh, I had him in my gospels class. Were you did you were you in New Testament too? Just gospels class, and uh, you know I, I knew he was an outstanding student. He was he's really bright, and his brother is actually my grader research assistant. So the Kuntz boys are two fine boys at OBU, but I didn't know he had this talent. And so I was asking around who who might be able to help us out today, and somebody mentioned Justin, and so I'm so happy it, it worked out. And uh, so I told him no pressure, but if you blow it, that's how people are going to think about OBU students. And I won't be able to correct that. So, uh, but he didn't. He did uh, wonderful. And so, Justin, thank you very much. I'm glad to be back. I'm glad to be here on a day when Jim Lehu is being honored and, and his family. And so, uh, I, you know, I'm I'm no better than second on the on the sh- on the list today. And I, I want to say about Jim, I've known him for all the years I've been coming here. So, from the first time I ever came over here and taught, you were here. And over those years. And, and, you know, we often say somebody's one of the best of something. Of, of all the churches I'm in and all the ministers, the pastors, and the staff that I'm around, he's had more influence on this community. I'm talking about what he's done, not even talking about what he's done inside. I'm talking about what the, the influence he's had outside these walls. He's had more influence on this community than any minister I know the impact you've had in this community is unbelievable. And he does it... He does it in a way that he doesn't care who gets the credit, and, and that's just so rare. He's willing to paint in the shadows and, and not care who gets the credit for it. And that, that's, that's uh, quite, a, quite a trait to have as a minister. And so, uh, Jim, I'm proud to call you my friend, and congratulations on 20, 20 years. So it's 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, but you know me, it's probably 1 John. We, we, we won't get through, we won't be flying through everything and getting to 2 and 3 John. Maybe on Wednesday night, but I'm not promising anything. I am promising we'll, we'll give 1 John uh, good coverage. So this morning, I'm just going to preach a sermon from 1 John. Tonight, we'll get more into some background stuff. But I hope you can come back at 5 o'clock tonight. And I think there's some uh, food we'll feed you at some point in the service this evening. So we'll get to some of that little more teaching time. This morning, though, I just want to preach from 1 John chapter 1, starting at verse 5 and uh, going through chapter 2, verse 2. About seven verses uh, this morning. So I don't know about you, but I've never been comfortable in the dark. I mean, the dark has always made me uncomfortable. From, I, I can't ever remember a time when I didn't like a night light at night. And I notice, I don't even think much about it, but I, like if I'm staying in a hotel somewhere, I will leave the bathroom light on and close the door so that there's just a little light in the room. And, and I, I can remember when I was like, you know, really young child, I wanted a night light, and I, I know why. Because I feared there were monsters under my bed or in the closet. And when the lights went out, they'd be free to do unimaginable things to me. And I mean unimaginable. I didn't want to imagine what those things would be. But if a light was on, somehow that would render them ineffective. I could sleep. 
I was probably eight, nine, ten years old, and um, I lived in Middlesbrough, Kentucky. That's where I grew up, still where I call home. And there's a park there. It's a national park, the Cumberland Gap National Historical Park. There's always a few people who may have traveled through there. It's where uh, Daniel Boone came through the gap there, and the, you know it's part of the westward movement, settling of the United States. But there's a cave as part of that uh, park system. And now it's called the Gap Cave, but then in all my young life, it was called Cudjoe's Cave. So I didn't really know why it was called Cudjoe's Cave. You drive up 25E, a really narrow road, and I lived in the mountains, and you, you, you had to really drive up a steep mountain. They built a tunnel through the mountain now. But when I was a kid, you drove up this steep road, and it was windy, and lots of accidents on that mountain. When you get to the top of tw that mountain on 25E, there was like a little market there, and you could get uh, snacks, you could get you know, RC cola and a moon pie or something like that. For where I came from, that's what you'd probably get. Or you'd put peanuts in your, your bottle of Coca-Cola, something like that. And there was a big sign on it that says, Cudjoe's Cave. So you could buy tickets for a tour of Cudjoe's Cave. So when I'd have family visit from, I had family all over the country, they'd come back to visit my grandmother. Um, they'd all come back to see her. So when they would come back, we'd, we'd inevitably end up going to Cudjoe's Cave because there wasn't that much to do. So the first time I remember going to Cudjoe's Cave with any of my family, I'm, I'm 8, 9, 10 years old, something like that. So we, we pay our fee, and now you've got a tour guide who's taking you through the cave. And it's about an hour and a half walk through the cave. It's sort of dark, sort of damp. If you've ever been in a cave, you know what I'm talking about. You know, stalactites, stalagmites, you know, the, you know the drill. First time, though, ever in a cave. And I immediately notice it's kind of dark in here. Now, there were primitive lights along the walkway, but it still felt pretty dark. And then the guide's telling us stories about how it got named, which I didn't know. But Kudjo was an escaped slave who hid out in the cave, and Confederate officers found him and, and killed him there. And so his ghost haunts the cave. You know, this is what the tour guide's telling this eight, nine, ten-year-old walking in this dark, damp cave. We get to a certain area about, about halfway through the tour, I imagine. It felt like we had we'd journeyed down into the, you know, depths of who knows what. And we walk out into this room that was called, uh, I forget what they call it, but it was a larger opening. And he stops, and he starts talking, and then he did the most evil thing that anybody had ever done in my life up to that point. He turned off the lights in that cave. And as I'm 8, 9, 10, a little bit scared of the dark anyway, and he'd already told these scary stories, and the darkness I found myself in was unlike any darkness I've ever experienced before or since. You can turn the lights off in your house, and it's not that dark. You could not see anything. There was no light from the sky, no elect, nothing. Absolute, total darkness. And I'm freaking out a little bit at this point. I'm thinking the worst about Cudjo and all kinds of things. So I did what any self-respecting eight-year-old would do. I grabbed my, you know, we'd walked out into this larger area. I was next to my mother, so I reach out, grab her leg, and hang on until they turn the lights back on. It felt like an eternity. It was probably 10 seconds. But he flipped the lights back on to my great relief, at which point I look up into the eyes of a woman who's not my mother. And it was a stranger, 
who was very kind to me, who seemed to not mind that I was uh, hanging on her leg. But I thought since that event, it's marked me. When somebody says you have nothing to fear in the dark, I say you're a liar. <laughs> From my experience, there's a lot to fear in the dark. <laughs> but I, I've always had this unease. And I think it's almost innate to human beings that, that we, we resist the darkness. There's something in us that knows the darkness is dangerous. And here's what John says in 1 John chapter 1, verse 5. And this is the message which we heard from him and we declare to you that God is light and there is no darkness in him at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in the darkness, we lie and do not do the truth. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we do not have sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just in order to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all sin. Or all unrighteousness. And then verse 10. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, I write these things to you in order that you might not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the whole world. So John begins here with a foundational claim. And here is the foundational claim of everything he's going to say. God is light. Now when you think about the creation account, you go back to Genesis 1. The creation account, what was the foundational as first aspect of creation? What did God speak first? Let there be light. Because it's so essential to life. There can be no life apart from light. There can be no sustaining of life apart from light. And so here's John's foundational claim. God is light. God is absolutely essential to human life. Apart from him, there could be no life. And he is essential to the sustaining of human life. God is light. Now it also points to, light is symbolic here of some aspect or aspects of God. So let's think about that. God is light. We're not saying that God gives light, although that might be true. We're not saying somehow that, you know, if, if you're close to God, you're close to the light, although that's true. We're saying something more foundational and, and more essential than that. God is light. Not God gives light. God is light. It says something about God's nature. And John's going to say something else in chapter 4, maybe, maybe tonight, I doubt it, more like Wednesday night. He's going to say, God is love. He says that in 1 John 4, 8. So, you, so 1 John is sort of has at the early stage, God is light, and late, God is love, but two statements about the essential nature of God. So when you hear a claim like that, God is light, we should pause and ask, well, what does that mean? What does that point to in God's nature? And I would say first, I think it points to God's holiness. To say that God is light is to say that God is holy. 
Now that's not going to surprise anyone. Uh, Leviticus 19.2, I, uh, you be holy for I, Yahweh, the Lord, am holy. We learned that early on that, that God is holy. And I think to say that God is light is pointing to God's holiness. We have this consistently in Scripture that light points to that which is pure, that which is clean, that which is right with God, and darkness points to that which is impure, unholy, and separated from God. So if you think about, again, I'll point to John's gospel often because same author, I believe. John 3.20 says, Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not even come into the light for fear their deeds will be exposed. Now, why would evil hate the darkness? Or, excuse me, hate the light? Because it's absolutely contrary to it. It's the opposite of it. God is light is a way to declare that God is holy. Now, what is true of God the Father is true of God the Son. To say that God is holy is to say that Jesus is holy. And there's a wonderful scene in John chapter 10. It's the first time Jesus uses the language of holiness in John's gospel. Jesus is going up to Jerusalem for a festival, which he does frequently in John's gospel. So he's going up there in John chapter 10, and the festival's not Passover. That's the one we usually identify with Jesus going up to Jerusalem, but it's a different festival. It's the festival of lights. Now think about this. At the festival of lights, Jesus goes up there to Jerusalem during this week-long celebration. And in John 10, 36, he says this, that he is, here's the quote, the one the Father has made holy and sent into the world. That he is the one the Father has made holy. Now let's, just a moment about this festival. It's called the Festival of Lights. It's also called Hanukkah. That's a word that means dedication. Every year, around Christmas time, Jewish people commemorate this event where the Syrians, or they were ruled by the Seleucids at the time, in 167 B.C., issued a decree, the emperor did, that Jews could no longer practice their faith. They couldn't do anything that's important to their faith. They couldn't have a copy of the law, the Old Testament. They could not circumcise their children. They couldn't, they couldn't observe the Sabbath. And they'd have to do some things that would defile them. They'd have to eat foods that were contrary to their law. They'd have to, and this was the worst, they would have to go into the holy place in the temple and the priests that the Seleucids would appoint so you can bet they're not any heirs in the lineage of Aaron that'd be to the highest bidder. But these priests that the Seleucids would allow would go in there and in the holy place, on the altar, in the holy place, pigs would be slaughtered. The unclean animal. It's just the most defiling thing you can imagine. This went on for three years. And on the very day that the first pig was slaughtered in that holy of holies. Three years later to the day, the Jewish people had fought against the Seleucids and won back control of their temple. And you know what they did? They went through that with a fine-tooth comb. You can bet they used Clorox wipes. They were spraying like I saw spraying in between the services here. They wanted to decontaminate. They wanted to get rid of every impurity. If there was one drop of swine blood in that place, it was unholy. They cleaned it up, purified it, 
made it the holy place again. And Jesus, and they commemorate that with the festival of lights, where the, the light, there was supposed to be enough oil to burn the candles for one day in the temple, and they burned for a week. So they established a week-long celebration to commemorate it. They called it Hanukkah, and it celebrates removing the impurities from the, from the holy place. Now here's Jesus trotting up there at just that time. And he says, I am the one the Father has made holy. God is light. It's to say that God is holy. It's also to say that God is truth. Light in Scripture is often identified with truth. Uh, If you think about uh, even this text, verse 6. If we say that we have fellowship with Him and walk in darkness, we lie. And you expect Him to say, and do not walk in the light. Right? That would be the natural conclusion to that line. Let me read it again. If we say that we have fellowship with Him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not walk in the light. That's what you kind of expect Him to say. But He says we lie and do not do the truth. It's like he substituted truth for light, as if they're interchangeable. To say that God is light is to say that God is true or truth. John chapter 3, verse 21, whoever lives by the truth comes into the light. There's John bringing these two ideas together, truth and light, so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. To say that God is light is to say that he is the source of all that is true and that it is impossible for God to lie. In fact, do you know how we determine what is true and what is not true? By what corresponds with God. What is the definition of truth? Whatever corresponds with God and God's word, that is truth. He defines it, and in him, there is not even the possibility of misleading or untruth. The third thing I think light can point to, God is holy, God is truth, and God is revelation. God is a God who seeks to make himself known. This is often, it's almost, you know, asking a fish about water. It's so natural that God reveals himself to us because we can see God in so many ways that we we take it for granted. That God has revealed himself in what has been made. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky, the works of his hands, the psalmist says. In Romans chapter 1, Paul says, you can see God's invisible qualities, his eternal nature, in what has been made. So that A human being living anywhere in the world without a Bible or without a missionary can look up at the sky, can look out at the ocean, can can see the changing of the seasons, the growing of the crops, and say, there must be a God. There There is a creator. There is someone who has is the architect of all this. And in any culture that's been discovered, there is some attempt to worship a higher power of some nature. It's the recognition there is a God of some type. J. 
just by what has been made. Now, God could have created the world in such a way that He could not be known. He would be hidden. But He has revealed Himself in plain sight, eyes wide open. No one will ever be able to stand before God and say, Well, I would have believed, but you just didn't give me enough information. You didn't give me enough revelation. Yes, there is sufficient revelation in what has been made. Thanks be to God for that general revelation in the created order. But even more, thanks be to God that he has revealed himself to us in more specific ways. Psalm 119, 105, God's word is a lamp to my feet and a light for my path. God's word is a more specific revelation. We can find out more specifically about God from his word than we can just looking at the creation. And God has revealed his word to us. We have it in our possession. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 2 and, and then verse 6. The prophet says, The people walking in darkness have seen a gray light. And those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. Now he's talking about God revealing to those in darkness a great light. Now what is that light? In verse 6 he says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Prince of Peace, Everlasting Father. That's a very specific revelation in Jesus. For those walking in darkness, a great light has shone. And then... In Luke chapter 2, when they take Jesus, Mary and Joseph take Jesus to the temple on the 40th day after his birth for her rite of purification, where she'll offer a sacrifice so she can be back in the community again. And a prophet is there, and his name's Simeon. And when he sees Jesus, he says, Luke 2.31, he takes him in his arms and he says, My eyes have seen your salvation, O Lord, which you prepared in the sight of all nations, a light of revelation to the Gentiles. You can hear this in John 1, 9. Jesus is the true light that gives light to everyone coming into the world. God is a God who desires to make himself known to us. We should be grateful to God that he is that type of God. And we celebrate this. We, we, we do it, and maybe we don't even recognize it. When I was younger, we used to sing a song in church a lot. Maybe it was more revival services, you know, where you'd sing it. But it's, I saw the light. You know that? For some reason in my mind, I'm thinking like Tennessee Ernie Ford or somebody like that. You really have to go back now. I've just dated myself horribly. But, you know, and if you recognize it, jump on in with me. I saw the light, I saw the light, no more in darkness, no more in night. Now I'm so happy, no darkness in sight. Praise the Lord, I saw the light. What are, we, what are we celebrating in that song? No matter how our voice might sound. What are we celebrating? That God made himself known. The light is Jesus. I saw the light like Saul on the road to Damascus. I saw the light, no darkness in sight. Praise the Lord, I saw the light. Now that's the foundational truth claim. God is light, and there's no darkness in him at all. Well, whenever you have claims of truth, you're going to have false claims. 
And there are people in the church, John's churches, in and around Ephesus, and, and they're making false claims about God and their relationship with him, and it's causing a rather significant problem in the church, and he's trying to address it. And he gives us here in what follows in verses 6, and then verse 8, and then verse 10, he uses three phrases. If we say, or if we claim, he repeats it three times. Here, here are the false claims that people are saying. He's already made the the truth claim, God is light and there's no darkness in him at all. Well, here, here's what they come back with. Verse 6, if we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, here's the first false claim. That you can have fellowship with God, you can be in proper relationship with God and walk in the darkness. Now, I would say that's a very common claim that either I hear people say or people who live that way. They claim to be in relationship with God, and yet they seem to be walking in the darkness. Their lives reflect something that is very contrary to God's will and God's way. John says that's a false claim. You can't be rightly related to God and be walking in fellowship with Him and be walking in the darkness. Now look at his response to their, that claim. We lie... And we do not do the truth at the end of verse 6. And we think about telling the truth, but when John talks about truth, he talks about doing the truth. Isn't that a good way to talk about truth? I, I'm not interested in wordy truth. People who make these grand claims. I, I want to see it. Do the truth. Anybody can make claims. Do the truth. He says, if you claim to be in fellowship with him and walk in darkness, because God is light, that's not possible. If we say that, we lie and we're not doing the truth. So here he gives a response to it in verse 7. If we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, that's one, and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. Two consequences of walking in the light, being rightly related with God. First of all, we have fellowship with one another. I mean, it's a simple truth, but if you're trying to do Christianity on your own, if the extent of your Christianity is me and Jesus, you're doing it wrong. Christianity is something that was made to be done in community with other people. Now, I might find myself in some extreme circumstance where... I don't have fellow believers to fellowship with. But we're, we're supposed to do this thing called Christianity with one another. We're better together. We need support from one another. We need prayer from one another. We need to help one another interpret the Bible well. We need to be discipled by one another. We, be, we need people to hold us accountable. You can't do it right all on your own. This fellowship is profound. And your deepest relationships should be with your brothers and sisters in Christ. I wonder if that's true. Who's your dearest friend? Who's the people you go to when you're hurting? Who's the person you call first when you're in need? Our deepest relationships should be with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Because our primary identity marker is, 
I am in Christ. We should walk in the light. We should have fellowship with God. And if we have fellowship with God, then we will have fellowship with His people. He's going to say later, Don't tell me you love God, whom you've not even been able to see, if you can't love your, your brother or your sister that you have seen. If you love God, you'll love His children. Our deepest relationships should be with one another. Just take a glance around the room. Really. Look to the side. Look, look to your right. Look to your left. You can even, if, you're, if you don't mind, crane your neck and look around this place. Are you seeing people that you consider some of your dearest friends? Are you seeing some of the people that you reach out to when you're in deepest need? When you need, when you need help? You know who to call for prayer. When you're not sure about how to read a verse of the Bible, you're calling them to say, what do you think about this? When you need somebody to hold you accountable, when you've got a tough decision to make, do you see those people here? Are they sitting in your Sunday school class, your small groups? See, if we, if we identify ourselves as believers, and that's our primary identity marker, then our closest and, and most profound relationships will be with brothers and sisters. If we define ourselves in other ways, then our fellowship will be with other groups. And, and you know, I, I, I do social media enough, but I, I see enough on there also to see that there's a lot of people who are part of Christianity, but whose primary identity marker is something other than in Christ. Over the last year, it's very evident that it's political. That their primary, that person's primary identity marker is, I'm a Republican or I'm a Democrat. I'm pro-Trump or I'm anti-Trump. That's my identity marker because that's how you're defining yourself. And my sense is, if that's how you're defining yourself, then you're going to find deeper relationships with people who agree with you politically, even if they're not believers, than with your brothers and sisters in Christ who might disagree with you politically. And I'll say to you today, that's wrong. We do it with collegiate identities. You know, I'm an OBU guy. I was sitting there today observing and, and liking Owen's green shirt. Does it say OBU there? Say what? It should. Yes, it does. <laughs> no, I can't do that. God is truth. No, it's not. But it's, it's a nice green color. I was sitting there thinking, you know, I probably should get a tie about the color of Owen's shirt for these, you know, like many OBU days. I'm an OBU guy. I love OBU. Now, I love Kentucky. That's also part of my... But when I'm dead and gone someday, I don't want somebody to think about me. Yeah, Dr. Kelly, he was such a big Kentucky fan. Now, that'd be true. He really loved OBU. He, he, he invested his whole life there. That'd be true. But I, I don't want that to be the thing on my headstone. I hope it's something about Jesus. I hope it's something about preaching in our church or teaching Bible study or trying to mentor students. Because my primary identity marker is not that I'm a Kentuckian or an Oklahoman, Oklahoman or a bison. It's that I'm in Christ. So my deepest fellowships are not going to be with alums. My deepest fellowships are going to be with my brothers and sisters. What, what's the outcome, he says, of walking in the light? We have fellowship with one another. 
And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. That's our deepest need. We don't need more education. I mean, we might, but it's not our deepest need. More education, more technology. We need something to be done with the sin problem we have that separates us from God who created us. And God's taking care of that with the death of his son. And the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. It's a consequence of being in the light. The second false claim is in verse 8. If we say that we do not sin, present tense, that we are not presently sinning. And, and I would hope that you'd say today, Dr. Kelly, you were here last year, and I think I'm sinning less than I did last year. I say, thanks be to God. But don't tell me you're sinless, because I ain't going to believe you. There's a difference between sinlessness and sinning less. I'm for moving towards sinning less, but that sinlessness, is a, that's a claim I'd be afraid to make. If anyone says we presently do not have sin, that's the claim. We are presently without sin. What's his response to that in verse 8? We deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Self-deception is, is, the, is the most ominous of all deceptions. To somehow believe that I don't sin, that I've risen above it. He says we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. I don't know if they were saying, well, you know, I'm in Christ and now when God looks at me, he only sees Jesus, or if they say, well, yeah, I'm a good person, I don't really break the, the laws in my society, so I'm sinless, or maybe it's just pure self-deception, they just don't see the sin in their own life, but he says, we deceive ourselves, and then his response to it is in verse 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just in order to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, so they want to talk about presently being without sin he wants to talk about confession and the word he uses is a beautiful compound word it means to say the same thing or to agree the word he uses for if we confess our sins means that we agree with God about our sin that we agree with God about how terrible sin is about how destructive it is about how it separates us from God we agree with God about that and if we agree with God about the nature of our sin, you know what we'll say? We'll say, I did it. I mourn it. And I do not want to do it again. And it's not just we want God to clean up the past. You know, like child spills their milk, sippy cups, not, the lid's not on good. And uh, they end up pouring it on top of their head or something. So we, we clean up their mess, you know. And, and we're God's children. So it's, it's, it's not just like we make a mess and we want God to clean it up. And that's not really the essence of the kind of confession he's talking about. It is about cleaning up the past. But it's not only about that. It's about saying not only do I want my past forgiven. But I want to be pleasing to you now in the present. And I want to be pure in the future. To agree with God. And that kind of confession shines the bright light of God's holiness in every dark crevice of our lives. So that we can't hide anything. 
That's the kind of confession he's talking about here. And, and it, it doesn't become truth that I am forgiven because I'm a good guy or because I pray the right words. It's not the confessor or even the confession itself. It's the God who is faithful and just. He's the basis of the forgiveness. And then the last one is here in verse 10. If we say that we have not sinned, now he changes the tense of the verb here. It sounds like he's saying the same thing, but it's slightly different. In verse 8, if we, if we say we do not presently have sin, but now it's like we, we have not sin, like it's a state in which we exist. I think it's a way to claim that sin's not really the human problem. It's possible to just live without it in a state of sinlessness. And his answer to that is, we make him a liar because he said sin is the problem and his word is not in us. That's one thing that we're deceiving ourselves or we lie and do not do the truth. It seems even more egregious to say we make God a liar. And what is his response to it in chapter 2, 1 and 2? My dear children... He doesn't sound mad. He sounds concerned, like a, like a parent to a young child. My little children, I write these things to you in order that you might not sin. And if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. This is another Greek word. You might hear it in Sunday school class or some maybe here and there, paraclete. Jesus uses it in John 14 when he's praying. He says, I'm going away, but I'm going to send another Advocate, paraclete. It's, it's like a lawyer. The response to someone who says, well, I, I, sin's not really the problem. I live in this state of sinlessness. We make God a liar, but here's the truth. We have a lawyer, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He's our lawyer when we stand before God. How do you like your chances with Jesus as your lawyer? I mean, I see all these lawyers on TV, you know, dial 1-800, get you a lot of money, you know, or whatever. No, nothing, I like lawyers, by the way. I've got lots of friends who are lawyers, so don't, I'm sorry if it sounds like I'm putting them down. But there's no lawyer going to be able to stand before a judge and have the kind of standing that Jesus has before the Father. And there's no lawyer that's going to stand before a judge and say, my client is guilty, but I have taken his guilt and all the punishment for it. So now I want you to treat him or her as if they are innocent. That's the lawyer I want. And Jesus is that advocate for us before the Father. I like my chances with the judge when my lawyer is Jesus, the eternal Son of God. And then the last one, verse 2. And he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the whole world. And now he changes the scene. First, it's a law scene, it's a courtroom drama, and now he switches it to a temple scene. And now you see a priest sacrificing an animal and sprinkling the blood in that holy area on the mercy seat. Only think about this priest. This priest is Jesus, the great high priest, and the blood he sprinkles is not the blood of a bull or a goat or a lamb. It's his own blood. Now, I know there's the imagery of Jesus as the Lamb of God, and, that, and that's, that's a nice analogy, 
but it, it falls short because an animal couldn't do the job for us. An animal could not turn away eternally and permanently God's punishment and wrath towards sin. An animal just couldn't do it. You had to just keep doing it day after day after day when it's just an animal, even a lamb. But when Jesus Christ, who came in human flesh and lived a life like we live, fully God, fully man, when he took upon himself our sins and then he became the sacrifice, that's the solution to our problem. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sin. So how do we respond today to the great foundational claim, God is light and there is no darkness in him at all? Well, it depends. Have you ever embraced the light? Have you ever confessed your sins so that you could say, I saw the light like Saul on the road to Damascus? Maybe somebody needs to call upon Jesus for the first time. Maybe he's shining the light of his truth in your heart right now. I'm going to pray in just a moment. You come up here. Owen and I will be standing here. We'd love to talk to you. Maybe you're a believer, but you've allowed yourself to veer outside the light, and you're walking in ways contrary to God's will, God's way. The call today is to confess. And he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you need to be cleansed today, we'll be here to pray with you. Let's pray. Our Father, I pray that you would shine the light of your truth and your holiness and your revelation into our hearts right now. And if you're calling us to do something, to take an action... I pray we would. And I pray someone would be moved to even make it public, to come up and say something to Owen and share that. And now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. Amen. You're dismissed.